Coming soon to own on video cassette. Back on the Y2K front, despite all the assurances that the Y2K computer problems are under control. Team's debut of Star Wars to be the opening act for a multi-billion dollar summer show. Only one question remains, just how many box office records can one movie break? You take the blue pill, the story ends. I see dead people. Malkovich, Malkovich. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. I will not apologize for what I need. I will not apologize for what I want. Five, four, three, two, one. Happy 1999. Hey everybody, welcome to 1999, the year that rocked cinema. My name is Jared Stossel. My name is Andrew Tucker. And this is the podcast where we are on a mission to do a deep dive of every film from the year 1999, getting down to the core of why this was one of the most influential years in all of cinema. Uh, Thank you again to everyone who's been listening so far. This week, though, we are... Well, it's not fair to say that because we did a kids movie or a family movie a couple weeks ago. The Sixth Sense. Yes, that, exactly. I mean, it's about a kid. (laughs) Um, This week we are doing another family film, much like Toy Story 2, uh, and also from the Disney family. Uh, Disney's 1999 animated film, Tarzan. Are you excited to dig into this one? Yeah, dude, I am. Um, I'm kind of bummed, actually. Because I love Disney movies so much, and we're going to cover both of them from 1999 in the first four episodes of the show. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's if you're following along and you're joining on this, we decided to do, in order to start this off, we're doing the first, the first ten episodes of the show are the highest grossing films of 1999. And at number three was Toy Story 2, and at number five was Tarzan, and then that's, that's it. <laughs> That's this is our only. Uh, I don't know if there's any other Disney like live action films or anything like that. I can't 100% remember from that list, but this is really our only chance to dig into like Disney animation. Right. So there's a couple of uh, Disney Channel original movies that I'm working on convincing Jared to go over. Oh, uh, you've you've convinced me, my friend. I am totally into this. So I Xenon, love the idea of don't look yes. under the bed. Those are oh my. those are coming soon. What? Wait, Don't Look Under the Bed came out in 99, seriously? I am 99% sure. Um, holy shit, that's like one of my favorite Disney original movies they ever did. But anyway, yeah, that episode will be coming soon for sure. So let's dive right into this and set the scene. Disney's Tarzan was released on June 16th, 1999. It was directed by Kevin Lima and Chris Buck, written by Tab Murphy, Bob Zudiker, and Nani White. It stars Tony Goldwyn, Minnie Driver, Glenn Close, Alex D. Linz, Rosie O'Donnell, and Wayne Knight. The IMDb synopsis is, A man raised by gorillas must decide whether he really belongs when he discovers he is a human. The movie is about the life of Tarzan. Tarzan was a small orphan who was raised by an ape named Kala since he was a child. Now for Andrew with the full rundown of this film. Yeah, since that that 
synopsis tells you jack shit, I'm going to go ahead and enlighten you as to what happens if you haven't seen this movie in a while. Um, so the opening few scenes in this movie are very sad. They rival up, I think, in terms of sadness because we start with a shipwreck. And I'm assuming that hundreds of people are dead because there's no way in hell that Tarzan and his, <laughs> and his parents are the only people on this giant-ass ship. So this is very upsetting. Uh, there's fire everywhere. Uh, and then we cut from the, the gruesome, fiery seas to the jungle where, what do we see? A baby gorilla dying. Then the depressed mother gorilla finds two dead bodies in a treehouse and steals their baby. This is the first time watching that movie that I noticed that there are two bodies laying there. I thought you just saw, like, paw prints, and I'm looking at the scene, and I see the bodies of Tarzan's parents, and I'm like, holy shit, this is dark. Oh, no, dude, there's bodies, <laughs> there's bloody jaguar prints or leopard prints or whatever the fuck they are. Yeah. Um, I'm not good at identifying my jungle cats. I apologize. <laughs> but it's, it's like, it's brutal, dude. It looks like an episode of the first 48 in there. And all of this shit happens before the first Phil Collins song is even over. <laughs> so we're, we're in like three minutes and 40 seconds. We have just a shitload of dark things. Then Kala, who's the mother gorilla, brings the weird like skin baby to the gorilla compound. And I call it a skin baby because that's what they look at it like, right? They don't know what a person is. So they look at this weird hairless baby thing. And all the mom gorillas are sitting around in their little sister wives circle. And Kerchak's like, what the fuck is this thing? I don't like that. <laughs> and he kind of just takes on this persona of the dickhead stepdad. If your dickhead stepdad was a 430-pound silverback gorilla. And so obviously our, our little friend Tarzan has not been set up for success. And no matter how much his mother tries to tell him that he's just like her. And they both have hands and eyes and all that other shit. He struggles to fit in with his little gorilla friends until he proves himself by stealing an elephant hair. Um, and at this point in the story, they think, okay, this guy's all right. And he forms his undying bond with Turk and Tantor, who's like this little Tony Shalhoub monk elephant kind of thing, who inexplicably <laughs> just like leaves his elephant herd behind and hangs out with the gorillas and no one seems to be worried about it at all. Um, but that happens. Watch it again. Um, and then there's like a fast forward montage where we skip all the young Tarzan shit but don't worry they're going to cover that in the sequel which is actually not like a prequel it's like a midquill but you can watch all that shit if you want to later but just like all these perfect family relationships right and I say perfect in quotes because clearly they got issues but hey it's America right <laughs> not, not really it's Africa but they're modeled after an American family anyway the relationship is ruined when this outsider in a sexy yellow dress named Jane comes walking into the picture and she comes in, super curious about Africa. She's like, oh, I wonder what everything he's like, right? And then she draws this little baboon, and then the baboon takes the drawing, and she takes it back, and the baboon's like, fuck you, and he gets his family, and they squat up, and they chase after her. And just when she thinks she's about to die, she gets swept off of her feet, literally, by Tarzan. And Jane and her father kind of form this bond with Tarzan, and they have the best of intentions, but they colonize and imperialize the fuck out of him, and they try to be like, I know you like trees, but here's a bike. You should go on that instead. And he's like, what? And they're like, exactly. Read Dick and Jane. You get it. And he's like, no, I don't. And they're like, fuck you. So he does all this shit, and eventually he's like, okay, I guess England seems pretty cool, and Jane's kind of hot, so I'm just going to betray my entire family group so I can get a, twice, a little taste of the sweet, sweet British poon. Um, and so he makes... 
the decision to stay in Africa, even though Jane wants him to go back to London. And in an effort to convince Jane to stay, he tells his guy Clayton, who's a huge dickhead, where the gorillas are. And everything goes downhill from there, except it's Disney, so it doesn't because it all ends up being fine. But not before Clayton hangs himself on a vine and it's very gruesome. There's like a swinging shadow and it's like very dark and weird. Um, and then Jane, her dad, and Tarzan uh, all stay together in Africa, where I assume her dad very quickly realizes that his old feeble body is not equipped to live in the jungle, and he dies. Jesus Christ. I've never heard it described that eloquently, but good job. That was actually, <laughs> I didn't write that. That was actually a direct quote from the pitch meeting. Let's get into the making of. I think that it's important to note that this this may be the first film we've been talking about in 1999 that isn't a sequel, but also isn't an original idea. It actually had source material. Like most Disney films, they usually come from some form of a fairy tale or an old timey book or something like that. So, Steal with pride is the Disney motto. <laughs> so we need to discuss this particular source material before we go any further. And the origin of Tarzan comes from a book that was written by the author Edgar Rice Burroughs called Tarzan of the Apes. The story itself was created by Burroughs and first published in the year 1912, not as a book, but in a pulp magazine called The All Story. So he published a story and it was so successful that Burroughs published the stories after a number of years in a standalone novel in 1914. And it was so successful this first book that it spawned two dozen sequels oh jesus yeah that's a lot that's great except tarzan of the apes is an extremely racist story um (laughs) that's yeah yeah. and that's saying it's extremely racist is almost like an understatement yeah it's it's not great no so for starters the name Tarzan literally translates to white skin in the ape language that Burroughs created for the story. That should be red flag number one. If your name is white skin, like you're not set up for success in terms of being like an inclusive guy, I feel. Yeah, yeah. The Tarzan movie that we've watched and that we've seen is... It talks about the themes of inclusiveness, about trying to fit in and where to belong and family. It's a very Disney-fied version of this story. That's fair to say. The entirety of the Tarzan stories that Burroughs wrote dealt with themes like, and I'm not kidding, racial superiority, civilization, sexuality, and escapism. Imperialism, colonialism. Yeah. The last two aren't that bad. There's, I mean... there any science fiction novel could be written as an escapism thing, but the racial superiority one, uh, I mean, it's clearly stated there's literally a line in one of the books that states, this is the house of Tarzan, the killer of beasts, and I'm, I'm not kidding, the killer of beasts and many black men. Jesus Christ. According to a piece written by a writer named Aaron Brady for an outlet called Pacific Standard, he summarizes the story of Tarzan quite well. In terms of the books. In Burroughs' first novel, this is more or less what happens. 
An African kills Kala for food, and Tarzan takes revenge. But in Burroughs' book, Tarzan's revenge is to become a literal death god, not only killing the killer, but punishing the surrounding Africans, for years, as an avenging demon from above. He exacts tribute, and he kills them for sadistic sport. In 1911, it's not surprising that Tarzan's reign of terror was so literally an expression of white supremacy. He lynches Africans for fun and he rules them for profit because that was what Burroughs thought was natural for white people to do. Now, remember the red flag that I said should have been raised a while back. At this point, every red flag that you should be seeing because believe me, there are more of them, they should be like a dark crimson red. Oh, absolutely, man. But like, unfortunately, this was a time in American history where this kind of shit was commonplace. And even more, unfortunately, it's still more commonplace than it should be. But like, you know, when um, when Tarzan came out, that was within the same like four year period as Birth of a Nation, which obviously was a hugely racist, awful thing. Weird. The history of that film is so weird because Birth of a Nation is the first blockbuster film, but it's the most racist film that I think has ever existed in America. I've watched it. It's really awful. And I think at the same time, though, the fact that that was the first blockbuster film that preceded Star Wars and Jaws and all, that should tell you everything you need to know about America. Yeah, and I think I bring that up because it's an important context about this time period. Like, and it it also is going to speak, I think, to Disney's decision-making a little bit on this because, yeah, like, they're, they're pulling this material out of a time when things were pretty fucking dark and we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a bit with that being said given that this was the 1920s and the 1930s how do you think the united states interpreted the story and the character not just given what was happening in the time period but given quite literally everything that we've just seen happen in the country over this last month i'd like to say that the united states was very angry about this story and that they protested it in the streets and that they took to Twitter and were enraged. But no, the United States did what the United States does. And they slapped a big old capitalism stamp on it. So when they saw this story, the dollar signs just started chinging in front of their eyes. Um, and this Tarzan story became a cultural phenomenon. Uh, starting in 1918 with Tarzan of the Apes as a silent film. Um, they continued to make movies about Tarzan uh, from the 30s to the 60s and obviously even into the 90s and 10s and 20s. Uh, the most notable of these films was Tarzan the Ape Man, which again, if we're talking about red flags, that's not the best title in the world. Um, no. That began in 1932 and that spawned 12 films until 1948. Oh, so it was basically like Marvel Phase 1 Avengers, but only Tarzan. So imagine if like Marvel Phase 1 Avengers was only Thor. And we got a, like 21 Thor movies. And they were all just about like a racist asshole. That's basically what happened with Tarzan. Um, and so those movies starred this guy who used to be in the Olympics. He was a swimmer named Johnny Weissmuller. <laughs> As Tarzan. So imagine like uh, Michael Phelps. Imagine Michael Phelps playing a racist Thor. And that was the only Marvel movie we got. That's what was going on starting in 1932. Um, Tarzan also around this time became a radio program. 
and a television show in the 50s. Um, and there were tons of different adaptations in the 70s and 80s and 90s, including a TV film called Tarzan in Manhattan, which I can only assume was the precursor to Jungle to Jungle. And... Uh, <laughs> One of literature's wildest heroes is back in an all-new adventure. This time, he's fighting for animal rights, and he's up against the world's most dangerous predator. He's stalking a different kind of beast in a different kind of jungle. Tarzan in Manhattan, Saturday. That came out in 1989, the year that I was born, so um, there's at least two shitty things that happened that year. Um... Marvel and DC Comics also had a brief run of Tarzan in the 70s, um, and it even became a Broadway production in 1921. Um, and Lin-Manuel Miranda wasn't around then, so it was not good. Um, no, Lin-Manuel wasn't. Miranda has a, has a way of taking racist people and making good Broadway shows out of them, as he's done with Hamilton. Yeah, He wasn't there for Tarzan, so there was basically just this imperialistic sing-and-dance number. On, yeah. on Broadway in the 20s. So just to, to kind of sum all that up, because that's a lot of shit that I just said. Before yeah. Disney took a crack at Tarzan in 1999, there were 47 different Tarzan movies between the time that the original book was published and 1999. And so that's like, it's less than 100 years. That's like almost two movies a year of Tarzan the, shit. Uh, yeah, that's is that nuts. is that correct math or am I being an idiot? It, it, no, that's that sounds about right. I mean, I'm also not good at math, but I feel like more than we ever have needed it, in absolutely. terms of the Tarzan property. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I don't even know if there's anything that is come cl- like I'm thinking of like horror movie properties and stuff that maybe have had adaptations from like the 1920s onward, but and I'm sure there are, but. The, that's one of the only characters in pop culture that has had this many adaptations, not just in film, but in like just in general, every medium. There's one. There's one that I found that has more, and that's Dracula. Oh, okay, yeah, that'd make more sense. And yeah. I mean, I can see that Dracula was like the only thing they had for a very long time, though. Like they're like, what are we gonna do? I guess Dracula again. Even so, given the inherent racism of the character and its history. This clearly isn't an issue for Disney. And (laughs) now, as I was saying at the top of this podcast, this is our only chance to really talk about Disney throughout the year in 1999. The animation segment of it uh, with talking about Pixar and Toy Story. So I need to bring this up. Andrew and I both love Disney. That was one of the first things I think we talked about. We grew up. We grew up on all these films. We love Disneyland and we go as often as we can. Obviously not this year. But even then, you have to acknowledge that Disney has a serious history of portraying racist stereotypes in their films in the past. Not as much now. They've made changes and started to acknowledge for their history by making these changes and putting more female characters, putting more characters of color in their films, things like that. But from the company's inception until around 2000, yeah, they were portraying a lot of racist stereotypes. And Disney has this history of taking stories that have very problematic moments and yet acting as if there is nothing wrong with them. Yeah, I wish it was going to be harder to find examples for this it part of the show, but it's very easy. It's it's very very easy 
So they've amended other parts of fairy tales in the past that have violence or gruesomeness, things that wouldn't sit well with children. So like the, the stepsisters in Cinderella, instead of trying to push their foot into the glass slipper, in the actual fairy tale, they cut off their toes so that they can fit in. And it's like bloody and there's there's violence and th- there's well, very Well, I've ordered things. shoes from Amazon that didn't fit and I've lost a toe or two. Oh, well, okay. Then I can't say anything. <laughs> it's understandable that those things are removed from the stories, given that they're going to be aimed at kids. But there's other moments that are just completely omitted because, oh, it's a princess in a fairy tale. One of the most prominent examples of this is Sleeping Beauty. And you can look this up. This is a real thing. Sleeping Beauty is not awakened by true love's kiss in the story, in the actual storybook. When she is in her sleeping death, the king goes to the princess, has sex with her, and while unconscious, gives birth to two twins. Okay, wait a She's second, because I don't remember that in the movie or the ride at Disney World. Neither of those two things were featured prominently. They're not. And it also doesn't mention that the, she only awakens when one of the twins sucks the splinter out of her finger from the spindle that she touches. And I didn't even mention the worst part of this, if we're also talking... Uh, worse than probably the incest, worse than all... She's 12. Oh, God damn it. And Disney was like, princess, fairy tale, scary dragon, let's do it. Jesus um, Christ. So Sleeping Beauty is about Crystalia, is what you're saying. <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, boy. Um, the Crows and Dumbo. They're literally named Jim Crow. I, it's like, if you're going to be that problematic in such an obvious way, like, how is there not a meeting where somebody's like, no, mm-mm, nuh-uh. Like, how, how can it be that on the nose and nobody's like, don't just don't do it, man. Just don't. Unfortunately, that's how in the... I mean, if you look at the crows in Dumbo, it's like... And you look at historians and what they've written about why Disney portrayed things in a certain way, it's because that's how he and many other people had had portrayed black people. I think betrayed is a good word there, too. Betrayed is probably a better choice. It was a Freudian slip that made sense, I think. Yeah, made total sense. Um, If we want to talk about another uh, problematic thing... Song of the South, and that's it. That 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 movie's the problem. Yeah. I've seen it. You, you don't can have look to say anything you, else about that. Yeah, you can go look it up if you got issues why people want to change Splash Mountain. Uh, I I get it. If uh, you're one Pocahont- of the people that like defends Song of the South, why? Like like why are you doing that? Pocahontas. I think the movie can literally be summed up in one line: These white men are dangerous. Oh, I thought um, you were gonna say Strange Clouds. <laughs> I thought for sure you were going to say Strange Clouds. Uh, I think that it wasn't Pocahontas. Like, I didn't... I researched the Sleeping Beauty thing more because I thought that was extremely <laughs> fucked up. And I was like, what? But um, Pocahontas isn't, like, in real life, she was, like, 13 or yeah, something dude. like that. I mean, she none may of have been the, younger. Like, like, it's... Yeah. None of the Disney princesses are of age. Ariel's 14 no. years old. Like... Yeah. It's one of those things where there's all of these things that Disney has seen films, and I admire the idea of wanting to tell a story to do this, but at the same time, you also have a lot of very creative writers and a lot of creative people, and I feel like it wouldn't be that hard to come up with an original idea. 
with that being said, this trend of adapting problematic material continued when it came to Tarzan. Absolutely, man. And and so at the time that they decided to make Tarzan, this guy Thomas Schumacher, who was the president of Walt Disney Features, um, said that he was incredibly surprised that there weren't any previous attempts to animate Tarzan before. So they had they had their their eyes on this movie, right? On this idea. This was on their radar. And obviously they'd seen the 3,432 other Tarzan movies and comic books and shows that had been made. Um, and he said, quote, here is a book that cries out to be animated. Yet we're the first filmmakers to have ever taken Tarzan from page to screen and presented the character as Burroughs intended, end quote. I don't know. It's it's interesting that they're looking at it in this way. But at the same time, um, Burroughs himself, as early as 1936, thought that animation was the right medium to bring his, quote, hero to life on the screen. Um, but he said, the cartoon must be good. It must approximate Disney excellence. So basically, Disney looked at the source material when they got this and said, how they knew they did see that there was an issue and they said how do we handle burrow's racist portrayal of black people in a kid's story and there's a moment when one of two things could have happened they could have decided hmm this is a kid's movie and this is a pretty serious issue that our author does maybe we can use this as a learning opportunity maybe we can make a story that kind of talks about the differences in race and uh, and how it doesn't matter what color another person's skin is, just the contents of their heart. Something that will really uh, re- resonate with kids, something that's important, because a lot of young kids like me at the time were going to be watching it, and they were going to be going, oh, wow, that's cool. Yeah, I, I think it's important to not judge people. Or they could just, you know, remove black people from well, the story entirely, and they removed black people from the story entirely. I think something about what you just said is really interesting, Jared, because the other the other thing to think about here is that there were going to be a lot of kids watching this who weren't like you. There was going to be a huge population of kids who don't look like us watching this movie. Absolutely. And not seeing anybody who looked like them in it. Yeah, and there's so we have a movie that's set in Africa and there's absolutely no black people and it's pretty ridiculous that Disney decided to just instead of I mean this kind of speaks to a problem that we see with Disney in the way that they don't want to acknowledge race their racist tropes in the past other than maybe an advisory on Disney Plus or cutting something out of a scene. And that's problematic because they have a very, I mean, Disney is a universal name. Everyone knows it regardless of race, gender. It, it is it is a household name. And the fact that there is a movie that is set in Africa that has a chance to take previously problematic material and turn it into something that could be really educational to people it's pretty sad that they decided to kind of go with this way i think that the film still has very cool moments i think there's some great things about it it's still an enjoyable film but there's things they could have really taken further with it and absolutely 
Yeah, so Tarzan has been criticized quite a bit for this erasure. The co-directors, Kevin Lima and Chris Buck, have said that the absence of minority characters in Tarzan was a consequence of the desire to keep the story simple. So basically, they admitted to taking the easy way out. And no matter how many Phil Collins songs you put in it to try to (laughs) suck up to me by how great they sound, um, I think that it's just, I, I, I don't know, I find it particularly... For a company like Disney that has that much of an outreach to kids and to families, I found it a bit irresponsible. And I think that it's pretty crazy that the first black character in a film as a leading character would not come until 10 years later with Princess and the Frog in 2009. 2010? I can't remember. I don't but remember either. 10 years later or something like that. So, uh, bottom line is Disney has a history of racist tendencies, characters, and tropes in their films. And this might be us on our soapbox, but it should be acknowledged. And it's, like I said, it's it's problematic not just because of the source material, but because this company has a history of taking stories with these racist problems, taking everything out and rewriting the history as if nothing happened, packaging it up and selling it. And to elaborate, here's Dr. Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park. I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done, and you, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well, I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. One thing that I will say about Disney's adaptation is that I think it's actually a little more layered than maybe we made it out to be through a lot of this discussion because I think there's kind of two prongs of this sort of like colonialism and imperialism going on in the movie. Yeah. One of those things is Jane and her dad and they're sort of doing the innocent, like we want to teach Tarzan about our world because we think that he should know about it. And I think that that part of them trying to sort of colonize him is a well-intentioned thing. Like they're trying to open his mind a little bit. Um, they don't realize what they're doing like they don't realize the implications of that and i don't think as a kid i did either but watching this again recently i definitely thought about that um but then on the other side of that coin you have clayton who is sort of the the down and dirty uh imperialist and in his whole thing is to just take 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 and not give anything back and I think that, to the movie's credit, Clayton is the villain of the movie. So I think that there's there's something to be said about the fact that the guy who is outwardly like colonial-slash-imperialist is the person that we're rooting against in the movie. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that that is any sort of, like, consolation for the other things at play with the tarzan story so i guess my my goal here in saying that is just to say like by by sort of like bleaching the tarzan story for lack of a better word i think that disney went a step in the right direction compared to some of the other adaptations of tarzan that there have been 
Um, but there's still a lot of room to go. So, yeah, I think it was, I agree with that. I think it was definitely a step in the right direction, but I guess my criticism is that there's so much more that they could have done. And, um, it's just a shame that it's taken this long to, uh, for society to realize that. And I hope Disney comes around and does, and takes even further steps. In my opinion, I think that like, if we're talking about things like what Disney should do to acknowledge its past i think they should release song of the south but they should do it in a way that hbo max is doing it with gone of the wind where they took it off their streaming service but then they're going to put it up in in addition to a conversation about the film and we're not putting it up as just like oh here's another disney movie to watch it's we're looking at it as hey this was a moment in our company where we had a really big misstep we're going to show you a movie, but afterwards, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about why it's wrong and how we can move on and go from here. I agree, man. And and I, I hope that Soul is going to be a step in that right direction. Me too. Me too. Um, Soul Soul's the, the Pixar Disney movie that was supposed to be coming out in 2020. I don't know if it still is. Starring Jamie Foxx and Tina Fey, Questlove, uh, Felicia Rashad, Dave, uh, David Diggs, and Angela Bassett. Um, with music by Trent Reznor, which is kind of cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> but but I, I'm hoping that that movie is going to sort of get us into the direction that Tarzan could have gone into, which is being a little more open and direct about these kinds of topics. So so we'll see what happens. Yeah. All right, Andrew, let's talk about the pitch in the cell. So the beginnings of the animated Tarzan film go all the way back to 1994 simpler time i was four or five years old depending on the month a wee baby (laughs) at the time jeffrey katzenberg not a wee baby in fact the studio chairman of the walt disney company approached director kevin lima to direct tarzan lima had just finished up work on a goofy movie which is one of the best disney films of all time a hundred percent uh, and he was reluctant to take on Tarzan, which I can kind of understand um, for a couple of reasons. One, Goofy Movie was such like a fun romp with an original Disney character, and Tarzan's like this weird, dark adaptation of some real just just gloomy shit. So that's that's one reason. But two is at the time, Katzenberg didn't want Disney animators to take on Tarzan. He wanted this Canadian-based satellite television animation studio to do the animation. And we all know how those Canadians animate. Am I right? Yeah. Hey. Uh, I'm just kidding. I, I know nothing about Canadian animation. Um, <laughs> I just know Terrence and Philip look weird. So, like, imagine Tarzan, but they move like Terrence and Philip. Anyway, since what the studio... You, I'm not your buddy, guy. I'm not your... <laughs> I'm not your friend, Tarzan. (laughs) Well, I'm not your ape man, Englishman. Um, Anyway, since the studio would have been made up of a bunch of inexperienced animators who were unaware of Disney's style for the most part, um, Lima said that he didn't feel comfortable directing the movie, and he initially declined the offer. With that story, fast forward a little later in that year, after this conversation between Katzenberg and Lima, and Katzenberg leaves Disney pretty unceremoniously. You can look that up, but... He was this... the dickhead guy that we talked about with the John Lasseter story, right? Yes. Like, okay. Yes. He's the one that John Lasseter said fuck you to. 
Um, so this is at the time though, if you're on the outside looking at all of this, you don't know anything about the inside of the studio system. You just you, you go to the movies and you maybe know some of the names. So to people looking at this, this is a bit shocking because Katzenberg, along with Michael Eisner, helped usher in the period of time called the Disney Renaissance. And this is a great time for this company. The Disney Renaissance is considered a period of time between 1988 and 1999 in which Disney animation returned to its former glory. If you look at a number of films pretty much after Walt Disney died, there are a number of good films, but they don't really generate box office numbers. They don't generate a lot of buzz. And it's a big problem for the studio. It's weird. If you look at the schedules of films that are released in the 70s and 80s up until Eisner comes on, and even a little bit after, any Disney film that they try to put out are just re-releases of their movies. They... They released. They re-released everything for theatrical releases. It'd be. It's kind of similar to how like Star Wars was like. We're releasing Star Wars in theaters again, but we've added new digital projection or something like that. Like yeah, it was just could- like that. Like they they released Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, but there were a bunch of dewbacks in the mine. <laughs> Not this again. <laughs> Not this again, but anyway. Misa whistling that. while I work. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh my God. So something similar to that. But so the films that Eisner was behind were Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King. They were making hit movie after hit movie after hit movie. and But Katzenberg, as it had turned out, had proven very hard to work with. And he left the studio to go and form... Um, DreamWorks SKG with Steven Spielberg and David Geffen. And they produced their own competitive films like The Prince of Egypt, The Road to El Dorado, Joseph King of Dreams, Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron, and of course... Somebody once told me the world is gonna roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool in the I mean, okay. Prince of Egypt, fine. Road to El Dorado, okay. Did not see either of those other two. Joseph King of Dreams, I didn't watch. Spirit, is that horse movie? No. But Shrek, though? Like, Shrek is DreamWorks' baby. Shrek, I mean, Shrek is sort of the anti-Disney movie. It takes all the fairy tales and it just kind of... It it does what Disney can't do, essentially, which is make fun of them. And it's, it's, it's such a good movie. But... Um, interestingly, Tarzan was, uh, also at the end of the Disney Renaissance. It was the last ever movie, short or feature length, made by Walt Disney Animation Studios to win an Academy Award until the short film Paper Man, which was shown when the movie Wreck-It Ralph came out. I think that was 2012, so that's quite the gap. Yeah, there's a big gap of time, and this is truly the last film of the Disney Renaissance. I always thought the last film was The Emperor's New Groove, um, which is a criminally underrated Disney movie, but that's for another time. The the moral of the story here is that Katzenberg was out at Disney. Iser took over, um, and his whole thing was that he wanted to kind of write the course for the animation studio. And it feels weird to use a ship metaphor about this movie because the first thing that happens is a ship crashes right <laughs> into the fucking water. Yes. But anyway, 
uh, Eisner takes over and he contacts Lima again. And he goes, hey, man, some shit has changed around here, as you may have noticed. Um, and now we're going to animate this movie ourselves and we're not going to send it up to the great white north. Um, and upon hearing that, Lima is a lot more interested because for some reason he just hates Canada. And he decides, all right, I'm going to go back and read the source material. So he reads Tarzan of the Apes, and he just sits there scratching his head going, all right, how the fuck am I going to turn this weird racist shit into like a happy-go-lucky children's movie that we can actually work with? Um, And so the first visual that he gets is that idea of the two hands held up against each other. So you'll remember in that scene where Tarzan's kind of questioning who he is as a ape man. And Kala is like, you're my son. We're the same. And they hold their hands up together. That was the first sort of idea that uh, Lima had. Right. And so this image ends up becoming sort of the symbol that the entire movie ends up getting built on. Um, It's a metaphor for Tarzan's search for his identity and a place to fit in and all that other fun stuff that sort of uh, took over and replaced the not-so-fun themes of the original book. Kerchak said I don't belong in the family. Never mind what Kerchak said. <laughs> Hold still. Look, look at me! I am Tarzan. And do you know what I see? I see two eyes, like mine, and a nose somewhere. Ah, here. <laughs> two ears. <laughs> Let's see. What else? Two hands? That's right. (laughs) So after studying the book for two months, he contacts another animator uh, named Chris Buck. Chris Buck. Lima approached uh, Buck to ask if he would co-direct the film with him. He was skeptical at first, um, but he liked the ideas that Lima was bringing forth in regards to the story and the theme and what Disney could work with, and he agreed. So basically Buck was like, dude, come on. I just had to deal with all this Pocahontas bullshit. Now you want me to handle Tarzan? It's like my career can only take so much, dude. Um, But by April 1995, they'd agreed and they were ready. So then they just needed a screenplay. And that's when Tab Murphy comes strolling onto the scene. And I got to say, Tab is a great name for a screenwriter because it's like a key on a keyboard. And that's kind of fun. You know, ah, that's good. Yeah. You know, like doing your name is like what you do for your career. That's kind of, yeah, neat. That's, that's actually, that's pretty good. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think it's kind of fun, but, uh, tab Murphy had just finished up the hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, which was a highly underrated Disney movie. It's also, yes. um, it's also one of Disney's first attempts to kind of bring themselves back from the funk after the Renaissance has ended, they they set out to write Hunchback of Notre Dame as an Oscar movie. Like, that was their goal. Um, and if you want to learn more about that, you can go listen to my buddy's podcast. My friends Cody and Paul have a podcast called That's Podcasting, and they cover movie musicals. And one of their first episodes is about the Hunchback of Notre Dame. That's and awesome. And so if you want more info on that, go listen to that podcast. It's awesome. They do a great job. Murphy comes off of this movie and he likes this man versus nature theme um, that he's seeing in Tarzan. And it's kind of related to the, the, to the themes of hunchback a little bit. 
Um, it's about this idea of, of having somebody who doesn't fit into their surroundings and, and what they do about that. So he starts to develop the script treatment in January of 1995. And things are going pretty well um, until he gets to the third act, which if you've ever taken a screenwriting course, you know your third act is the thing that's going to make or break you a lot of the time. It's the thing that pr- that pretty much defines the legacy of a film because you could have something build up and be really great, but if it does not stick the landing, then it, you're, I mean, your film, the legacy of your film is kind of doomed at that point. Well, the last thing you see is always the first thing you remember, right? So if your movie has a shit ending, you're done. Think of the village to bring it back to M. Night Shyamalan. <sighs> yeah. Boy, okay. Yeah. Uh, so my opinion aside... When Murphy was working on the third act, he wanted Tarzan to leave for England at the end of the movie because that's what Tarzan does in the books. Um, but Lima and Buck, the co-directors, both said that's not going to work because um, they were trying to focus on this whole theme of togetherness and being a family and Tarzan saying fuck off to his entire family and leaving for England at the end of the movie <laughs> isn't exactly like uh isn't exactly the way to show that theme to your young audience. Yeah, it wouldn't have worked. Um, So they they didn't think that that would match the story. So instead, they decided they were going to restructure the third act so that there's a very clear villain. um, And that that villain would give them a way to not only keep Tarzan at home, but to endanger the gorillas um, and to kind of give Tarzan a real reason to stay. Um, And so that's how Clayton came into the picture. Um, And... At the time that they brought Clayton into the picture, they actually had to do a little bit of tweaking to Kerchak's character as well. Because, as you'll notice watching this movie, Kerchak is a real dick. He, I mean, to be fair, he's trying to do what's best for his family, right? He's trying to protect his group of gorillas. But that also makes him a real shithead to Tarzan. Um, And he was kind of painted as the villain of the movie, until they made this late decision to make Clayton the real bad guy. And there's almost kind of a red herring thing going on in the final product with Kerchak at the beginning, because you think Kerchak sucks pretty much until he's about to die. And then you're like, well, maybe he kind of got it at the end, you know? And right about that time is when you go, oh, hey, Clayton's actually the bad guy. Whoa. So (laughs) um, so I think some of the remnants of that early draft are, are left over. Yeah, and there were there were a couple of other little writing challenges that presented themselves. The writers weren't sure how Tarzan was going to learn about his past. Um, if you remember the scene where Kala takes him up to the treehouse and he sees and learns where he came from. So in order to get an understanding of what Tarzan is feeling in the treehouse scene, uh, producer Bonnie Arnold brought in adoptive parents to talk with the story team about that reality, what kids feel when uh, they learn about their real parents, when they learn that they're adopted, things like that, and they tried to adapt that into the story itself. Is this me? And this is my father. And... Now you know. Tarzan, I just want you to be happy, whatever you decide.
And that's that was a tough scene, I think, probably for them to write because even though Kala can talk to Tarzan, like she doesn't understand what she's looking at necessarily in that room. Like she, I think she obviously put together that his parents were the people in there who had passed away, right? Um, but she doesn't know where they came from either. You know what I mean? Like all, none of that is something that she can explain. So I think it's very challenging to try to write that because there's so many layers of, of confusion there. Enter screenwriting duo Bob Zudiker and Noni White. I hope I'm pronouncing those names correctly. But um, Zudiker and White are a husband and wife screenwriting duo who were actually responsible for another Disney film that eventually became a Broadway musical called Newsies. S uh, very much similar tones and themes to Tarzan <laughs> and Newsies. Publisher Joseph Pulitzer ran New York City. There's lots of money down there in those streets, gentlemen. I want to know how I can get more of it. Newsboy Jack Kelly was running from his past. You were in jail? Well, I was starving, so I stole some food. He had nothing until Pulitzer's greed charged the newsies more for their papers. They can't get away with this. Gave him something to fight for. Are we just going to take what they give us? Or are we going to strike? So Disney hires them to help add some more focus to the story and insert some more humor so that there's it's it's a kids movie. So they have to make sure that the emotional moments in the film are balanced out with humorous moments that will appeal to kids. They also hired um, a comedy writer named Dave Reynolds to write more humor for the film, uh, punching up and rewriting parts of the script. He was initially hired for six weeks, but ended up finishing all of his work a year and a half later. He is actually quoted by saying, either they liked my work or I was just really bad at time management. Well, dude, you got to think about this for a second <laughs> because this this script got, I think, probably a lot more treatment than most animated scripts do. Um, and you, you got to put yourself in this Dave Reynolds guy's shoes because he's coming in to make the script more lighthearted after... Zudiker and White have already done their attempt at making it more lighthearted. Yeah. And as we covered earlier in the podcast, it's not lighthearted material that we're covering here in this no. movie. So no. Dave comes on board for six weeks. And at the beginning, you have to imagine they have like a meeting and he sits down and they, they go, okay, Dave, so here's the plan. Are you familiar with this very problematic and racist book? And he goes, Yeah. And then they go, we need you to make it funny. <laughs> and he goes, what? And they go, yeah, you know, like, make it make it kind of fun. Like, there's a lot of characters who die in this, and there's a lot of kind of weird racial tension that never really gets talked about. You think you can make that kind of fun? And he goes, well, I, I already signed the contract, so I, I guess so. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Six weeks turns into a year and a half pretty fucking quick when you're trying to do that. Like when you're trying to make it, yeah, I can work. imagine because you would have. I would have to think. I don't know very much about Dave Reynolds, but I would have to think that he was probably one of the most sensitive people on this team, because <laughs> there was an opportunity for him to to put some humor in here that didn't land. You know what I mean? Like, I I think this was probably a tough job. Usually, I look upon this kind of thing pretty poorly, where a studio brings in other writers after they've initially done some to destroy another writer's work. Like kind of how we talked about uh, the Wachowskis 
um, how they had the script done and then they behind their back somebody else was brought in to basically revise it because we're a big Hollywood studio and we can make whatever we want and we'll just use the core of your idea so I'm usually very against that but in this instance it worked pretty well in the sense that they balanced the humor and the emotion of it really nicely well I gotta say man I think if you're if you're like a writer director you know what I mean like if you're if you're like a like a Quentin Tarantino or a Spike Lee and you're someone who is creating this entire work yourself from scratch. Yeah. I think there's there's less of this, but I think if you're like a hired hand for a, a big ass movie studio like Walt Disney Animation or Warner Brothers or something like that, I th- I think there's kind of an expectation that this is going to happen to you. Like even if you're a novelist, like everybody has an editor and a publisher and there's there's a degree of this kind of in every written creative art form, except maybe poetry. I don't know too much about it. I agree with you. It's kind of like, it seems kind of shitty, but also it, it is what it is. Yeah. You got to kill and your I, darlings, as they say. Yeah. So let's talk about, um, obviously, not the filming of it, but the animation of it. Uh, so to just to start this off, animation took place between two teams. One was in Burbank at the Disney Studios, and another was at a unit in Paris. And distance proved to be a problem. Just like me and my ex. Uh, no, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, oh we had problems. We were fucking 10 feet from each other. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the point here is, like, you guys know that Paris and L.A. are not, like, right next to each other. Right, like there's there's a big six thousand something mile difference between those two cities, as well as several time zones, and so it's it's difficult to work across time zones. Like I work at a company where I work with people on the East Coast all the time, and three hours is a challenge. So imagine trying to work <laughs> on something this complicated with somebody in Paris while you're in LA. Right, it makes things difficult, especially in animating the scenes between Tarzan and Jane. And the reason for that is that Tarzan and Jane were not animated in the same physical location. They're, those characters were animated, one in L.A. and one in Paris, but 90% of their scenes are them interacting together. So it's a complicated thing. Which right? I always found very odd that they were like, if they're going to have the most scenes together or some of the most important scenes why would you not have the units all together animating it but what well, do I you know, know it works sometimes because like from what i remember michael jordan and bugs bunny were not actually in the same place together when they were making <laughs> space jam and their scenes were pretty good <laughs> yes that's that's very true that's so, very true point proven right so anyway the, the idea here is that glenn Keane took on the role of supervising animator for Tarzan in Paris and Ken Duncan was supervising the animation for Jane in Burbank. And just like long distance lovers, those two animators had to work out a schedule of working together to make this happen. So how did they do that, Jared? So to help this move along even more, it, they utilized something. It was kind of like a much earlier version of the cloud. This is obviously the nineties. That technology was not that advanced yet, but uh, was it more they, like a strange cloud? Uh, more like a strange cloud. <laughs> Way to bring it back around. 
to help work this out, the studio used a type of technology that was called a scene machine. And this was basically um, handy when animating scenes to multiple characters as it would send rough drawings between both animation studios. So somebody could see what one person is working on at one time, animate it by the time, let's say that the studio in Paris is asleep, and then they send their stuff over to LA. LA is waking up, they work on their rough scenes, make their changes, send it back over to Paris, they, animators in LA go to sleep, and then they wake up and go, okay, so we've got this scene figured out, and then here's the rough drawing for the next scene, let's start working on it. So... When you explain it like that, it almost sounds more efficient because there's no it's like a 24/7 animation schedule then. Yeah, it's weird. They even I think Glenn Keane even said in an interview we could almost be working for 24 hours straight and it was really effective. So it it worked itself out as like crazy as it sounds. Like even I'm even kind of going back on my comment is like, "Well, why would we have people animated in a different part of the world?" It's like when I think about it in the sense of it's kind of a perpetual motion device that's just going uh, 24 hours a day. The movie's moving along quicker in a weird way. That's fascinating. Um, I learned yeah. something today, Jared, because <laughs> I thought that Scene Machine was just a segment on whose line is it anyway until now. <laughs> and additionally, there was Florida. Now we, all, <laughs> now we all know about Florida, and I know that sounds ominous, but it's not. This is the first time that anyone has ever presented Florida as the solution <laughs> for a challenge. Disney also has a feature animation studio in Florida since it's near Disney World. I think that was a similar kind of thing with an animation studio near Disneyland Paris, but I'm not 100% sure on that. But I know that there is something in Florida where they had an animation studio. And so the team hired 200 animators to provide character animation and special effects. And according to an article from the Orlando Sentinel, the animators in Florida had joined in towards the end of the project because they had just finished the bulk of a work on another very powerful Disney film called Mulan. I thought you were um, going to say, according to the Orlando Sentinel, a man threw an iguana in the window of a drive-thru at a Taco Bell. <laughs> Usually that's what happens. That's typically what the... the th this Disney story was like on the 15th page of the Orlando <laughs> Sentinel after several bizarre and strange things. But with Florida Studio in the mix, the filmmakers were having daily video conferences in which they discussed the storylines, the animation, and the music at the same time that would make up the film. Because given that this is also a musical, it's different than making a film, finishing it, uh, putting a picture lock, doing all the sound effects, and then having someone come in and score it. They have to kind of do everything all at once. So... Overall, there were 1,000, approximately 1,175 animators, producers, and musicians that had to bring Tarzan to life. Holy so there were shit. over, yeah, so it's a big team. There's over 1,000 in Burbank, about 150 in Paris with Glenn Keane, and then 200 that were in Orlando. Now that we've got the, an we've got the animators going, but we're going to jump back on something. Let's talk about the cast. Let's do it, man. Let's do it. And because one of these directors worked on a Goofy movie before this, I'm going to call this the perfect cast. Yeah. Because I can. <laughs> so, uh, and, and we're actually going to cover what an imperfect cast may have looked like. Because just like The Matrix, there are a lot of actors who may have played these characters who didn't. And so there's, there's some interesting options we're going to cover. But anyway, we're going to kick things off with Tony Goldwyn as Tarzan. And you may recognize the name Goldwyn 
from the Metro Goldwyn Mayer lion growling at the beginning of all those movies at you? That is true. This guy's his grandson. But that's not what he's known for. Uh, Before Tarzan, he was known for Ghost. Um, and he had a number of bit parts on TV shows like St. Elsewhere, Matlock, L.A. Law, and Murphy Brown. So he did the the law circuit on TV. <laughs> uh, and he was also in some films like Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives, The Pelican Brief, and Nixon. Um, of course, he was Tarzan. And after that, he was in a couple of things. One of them being The Sixth Day. Another one being The Last Samurai, which is yet another problematic movie in many ways, <laughs> but not because of Disney. Um, well, and- I will say, um, Amazon Fire Stick does not seem to have a problem with it because they keep pushing me to watch the fucking movie every time I turn on the TV. There's like, hey, this is streaming free over here. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Are you sure? Y- yeah, I'm, I'm good. There's okay. so many things that Tom Cruise has been in that would be a better choice to watch. That <laughs> anyway. said, if you're looking for a good night to just sit down with some Panda Express, The Last Samurai... <laughs> And the Great Wall would be a couple of just great cultural appropriation movies for you to watch. I when the first trailer for the Great Wall came out, I just looked. I was like, "Really?" I watched the movie <laughs> for some reason. Oh my and god! It was exactly what I thought it was going to be. But I am digressing to the nth degree, so we're just going to move on. Uh, Tony continued to be the voice of Tarzan uh, in the Kingdom Hearts video game. Um, he was also in The Last House on the Left, which is a little bit of a departure from Tarzan. Uh, he's kind of nowadays most known for being on Scandal, uh, but he's also in Divergent and Insurgent, which I have not read or seen. There's some interesting casting stories about Tony. Uh, we've already talked about the fact that he's related to the Metro Goldwyn Mayer Empire. Uh, his grandfather was a was a good friend of our friend Walt here. So there you go. A little bit of a connection there. Um, fun fact, Brendan Fraser actually auditioned not once but twice for the role of Tarzan. Did you know that, Jared? I did know that, but uh, I'm pretty glad he didn't get it because it would have led it we wouldn't have gotten um, another great Disney film. And that is George of the Jungle. That's which right. is fucking fantastic it's got leslie mann in it it's got brendan fraser in it and interestingly when i was doing research for this podcast it's kind of noted as one of the least problematic adaptations of tarzan yeah it's i feel like it's kind of just making fun of the series which is great yeah it is it is and 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 like it actually gives a lot of the black characters more agency than they get in any of the true tarzan remakes so there you go george of the jungle it's more than just a weird Adam Sandlery kind of movie. Um, <laughs> there were a couple of other people besides Brendan Fraser who were almost cast as Tarzan. And there are some interesting choices on this list. Primarily, Ben Affleck, hmm. Christian Bale, <laughs> and Robert Downey Jr. Interesting. So we've got Batman, Batman, and, <laughs> and Iron, Iron Man. Man. Uh, and I think kind of luckily none of them got it. I, I, I think yeah, I, I can't really imagine any of those people in this role. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy they didn't get it. The reason that they didn't, though, was because Goldwyn was so good at having this quote-unquote animal sense in his script readings. And mainly he did an excellent job of impersonating baboons. 
<laughs> so they were like, hey, sounds good. You got it, my friend. Yeah. Um, there was only one issue here, though. And that's if anyone listening to this podcast is to think of Tarzan. Like, let's say that we were playing a game and you had to do an impression of Tarzan to get me to guess him. What would you do? You'd do the yell. You do the Tarzan yell, right? And I'm not going to do it because I live in an apartment and I have neighbors and I can only do it loudly. But <laughs> there's the famous yell. And this Goldwyn guy couldn't do it. He just couldn't do it. I don't know if he had weak, shitty lungs or what, but he couldn't make the yell happen. Um, and luckily, a man named Brian Blessed, who we're going to talk about a little bit more in a minute, uh, actually ended up performing the yell for him. And that's ironic because Brian Blessed p- plays Clayton, who's the villain in the movie. It all works itself out. It all comes around full circle in, in one way or another. Our next cast member is Minnie Driver, who plays uh, Jane Porter. And Minnie Driver was known for films like Gross Point Blank. She was in Goodwill Hunting, Sleepers, and she had a number of other television roles throughout her career. Um, she was obviously in Tarzan, and then afterwards, um, she did the English dub in Princess Mononoke, um, a Hayao Miyazaki film, which was released the same year. Okay. Uh, she was in South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. She actually voiced Brooke Shields. I did not know that. I didn't know that either until researching this. Um, she was in The Phantom of the Opera, and the she Gerard was The Gerard Butler one? I believe the Gerard Butler run. No uh, directed. Shit. Directed by Joel Schumacher, who sadly passed away today. Rest um, in peace. Yeah. And she was also the lead in a TV series called Speechless, which ran for 63 episodes. As, and she's currently in, um, she's currently filming a part in an upcoming musical adaptation of Cinderella. Not a Disney-related version, but uh, this one is set for release in 2021. Jane Porter was inspired by real-life jungle conservationists Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey, who both lived with and studied gorillas and chimpanzees. You've at least heard one of their names probably throughout your lifetime. That's an interesting coincidence, because Jane Goodall was obviously named Jane after Jane was named Jane in the book. Yeah, that's interesting. Wow. Um, But the character you see on screen is Minnie Driver in a bunch of ways. And this is something that is very awesome about Disney and Pixar and the way that they animate their characters. Uh, They really look at the people that are doing the voiceover work and they really try to base a lot of their animations off of the facial expressions that people make, the actual like body motions that they make when they're communicating. And then they try to bring that to the character to make it as realistic as possible. So, uh, Minnie Driver would basically, she'd have a lot of exaggerated mouth shapes and her eyes would light up. Uh, An animator was quoted as even saying she was really expressive and we took that and put it into the the design. And the scene where where Jane describes meeting Tarzan to her father was improvised, which is one of the reasons why it is one of the longest animated scenes ever. The scene took seven weeks to animate and 73 feet of film, which is crazy, but that's awesome seeing the length of detail that this company went to to make this and well i appreciate the fact that they're willing to put the time in you know what i mean like if they get a good improvised bit of dialogue and they actually like 
take the time to put that in, even if it's going to be seven weeks, that that's a testament to why this movie looks as good as it does. Oh my goodness, Daddy! I was walking. I was yes, yes. Little baby, little baby monkey in a dream picture. Yes, go on. Suddenly, the monkey starts crying. Oh, when I turn around, and there's a whole fleet of them. What? Of what? There's an army of monkeys, what, 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 a huge tree full of them. Monkeys. Screaming at me. Oh, 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 oh. Now, that's Therapeuticus Bobunus. She's very good at this. Oh, really? Terrified I was. Terrified. Suddenly, I was swinging in the vines up in the air. With the monkey. Swinging, yes. flying. I was in the in air. In the air, yes, I know. And they were all surrounded. What did you do? And Daddy, they took my boot. They took those are the ones I bought. And I was saved. I was saved by a flying wild man in a loincloth. Loincloth? Good Lord. What is she talking about? I hadn't the foggiest idea. Takes after her mother, you know. <laughs> She'd come up with stories like that. Not about men in loincloths, of course. But, uh... oh, and and like Tarzan, there were other people that had auditioned for the role of Jane Porter. Um, Laura Linney had auditioned for the role of Jane, as did Jennifer Jason Lee, Daryl Hannah, and Terry Polo. Um, none of them obviously got it, and we ended up with Minnie Driver. I think it was the right choice, but all the other actresses listed here are pretty great. So it'd be interesting. It's interesting to think about, but I'm very happy we landed on Minnie Driver. I think she does an amazing job with the voice of Jane. All right. So next up on the docket is Glenn Close as Kala, and uh, we gotta we gotta remember that Glenn Close is a Disney veteran at this point. Um, she was in the live action 101 Dalmatians as Cruella DeVille. She did an excellent job in that movie. Uh, in a movie that, quite honestly, wasn't very good. I think she she carried a lot of that performance. It's been a long um, time since I've seen it. You don't need to watch it again. <laughs> like, like most of the Disney live action remakes, it's not necessary to watch it. Because the cartoon is the same thing, but better. But anyway, I'm, again, digressing. Uh, but Glenn Close was in a bunch of stuff. She was in The World According to Garp, The Big Chill, Fatal Attraction, Dangerous Liaisons, Hook, Mars Attacks, ak, 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 uh, and Air <laughs> Force One. Uh, she was also a renowned stage actor. She got to play Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard in 1993, and again on Broadway in 94. And she was on TV a bunch of times in movies and shows throughout the 70s and 80s. After Tarzan, she returned as Cruella de Vil for 102 Dalmatians, which is even less worth seeing than the first one. She was in The Stepford Wives and Tarzan 2, uh, which we talked about a little bit earlier. She was in Hoodwinked, Hoodwinked 2, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Damages on FX. Uh, and she continues to do stage work to this day. Um, she took on Blanche Dubois in A Streetcar Named Desire. She was in a delicate balance, and she reprised her role in Sunset Boulevard in 2016 and 2017. Uh, first in London's West End, and again in a Broadway revival the following year. So she is active AF. And I'm, I'm, you got to understand as well, like the characters Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard, Blanche Dubois from A Streetcar Named Desire, like those are complex characters, and she. I mean, she's one of the most seasoned people on this entire cast. She's like, she's not taking easy roles. Um, no, she's so, fucking killing it. Yeah, she's doing awesome. She's a legend. I mean, yeah. Glenn Close is a is a legend. A couple of fun little casting stories and, and little tidbits for Glenn Close. One is that she actually had a very small role in a different Tarzan film in 1984. Interesting. The year that we're all just perpetually living in. 
Uh, that movie was called Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes. Um, and she was uncredited, but she had a voice role as none other than Jane Porter. So she was, I guess, as ready as she was going to get for Disney's Tarzan. <laughs> um, but she almost didn't get it. There were a couple of people who almost got it instead. And that was Sigourney Weaver of Alien fame and Holland Taylor. And they were both considered for call it. But luckily, I think, personally, uh, we got Glenn Close instead. Next up, we have Rosie O'Donnell as Turk. I mean, if you think of the 90s, Rosie O'Donnell was one of the most prominent figures in it. So, Dude, Jared, I got to tell you this. When I was a kid and I would get home from school, I always wanted to watch Nickelodeon. And I never could because my mom had to watch the Rosie O'Donnell show every <laughs> fucking day. And that's so ironic because then Rosie O'Donnell did the Kids' Choice Awards on She did, and she also had a book called Kids Are Punny, which my mom bought for me because she didn't think I was getting enough Rosie O'Donnell every <laughs> fucking day of my life. Her show, what from what I did see of her talk show, it was very fun and it was very vibrant. And it was, it was a good representation of the 90s. It was bright and colorful and it was fun and... And it was just like, it was just a very fun show. It was. And she was like a loud, boisterous kind of character, which fits Turk very well. So yeah. I I love the casting choice. But yeah. I, anyway, so, what was yeah. she in? What was she in before this movie? So before this movie, she was in A League of Their Own, Sleepless in Seattle, Fatal Instinct. She played Betty Rubble in the Universal adaptation of The Flintstones. And, Great fucking movie. Yeah. And she was in Harriet the Spy. Uh, so we talked about the Rosie O'Donnell show. Uh, she had roles and would pop up on shows like a fucking criminally underrated sitcom called Spin City. Ally McBeal, Will and Grace, and Judging Amy. And obviously, Kids' Choice Awards. If you were a 90s kid, you knew who Rosie O'Donnell was because she hosted it from 96 to 2003. Choice Awards, we're getting, you know, lots of fun dancing. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Ro. What? I got a question. You got a question? Shoot! How come nobody's been slimed yet? How come nobody's been slimed? I don't know! You know, I don't really know! Because I can't... You might have thought she was a slimy green person because she was slimed frequently on the green carpet, but she actually wasn't. And afterwards, she went on to become a moderator on The View on ABC a couple different times. Like, I think she did it for one year, took some time off, did some other projects, then came back. Huge mistake. One time on The View is too many times on The View. <laughs> uh, she had a recurring role on Nip Tuck, and she had numerous roles on shows like Curb Enthusiasm, Happily Divorced, Smash, The Fosters, and Empire on Fox. She was on Empire? Yeah, I guess she had a role in no one shit. segment. I was looking through the filmography and that popped up, but I, I've only seen one episode of Empire. Um, I thought so she I kind of like just disappeared after like 2003. I don't know. Earlier we were talking about uh, how we thought she was a perfect casting choice for Turk. 
And Turk was originally written as a male gorilla, but Rosie O'Donnell did an audition and it blew everyone away with what she brought to the character. And they decided to change Turk to a female gorilla and they cast her. Other actresses that were considered for the role were Natalie Cole, Christina Ricci, Kristen Johnson, and Teresa Russell. I believe Madonna was also considered along with Charo. No shit. That would have been a different movie, I think. I think Turk would have had a different song for sure. Yeah. And I feel like I I can't see any of these other actresses in this role. This role just, she did such a good job as a voice actress with this. And she's the only character to have the same uh, voice actress for both her young and adult self as well as the first of any Disney character, unless you count Kala in, or unless you count Ka in Jungle Cubs, um, which was a spinoff of the Jungle Book. I was going to say, what the fuck is Jungle Cubs? <laughs> to have the same voice actor or actress for their young and adult selves. Um, she was the only one to have this until Anna in Frozen, which wow. was in 2013. So there's another big year gap between there. Good for you, Rosie. All right, our next actor is going to be familiar to y'all because we just talked about him two episodes ago. It's none other than Wayne Knight, who played Tantor. Uh, And you might remember him as Al from Al's Toy Barn. Um, We talked about his filmography quite a bit in that other episode, so we're not going to go too far down the rabbit hole on Wayne. But there are a few good casting stories for him on Tarzan. Mainly the fact that he was not originally supposed to be Tantor. It was supposed to be somebody very, very different from him. Do you have any idea who that might be? Yeah, I do. And I'm very glad it didn't happen. Who who was it, Jared? Tell me who it was. It was supposed to be Woody Allen. <laughs> Woody fucking Allen was going to be Tantor the Elephant. Which, like, half of me is like, I could see why they thought about going that route. And then the other half of me is like, thank God they didn't go that route. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I could yeah. I could see him playing that character in, a, in an okay way. But obviously, as we've talked about earlier in this podcast, Disney has some problematic things in their movies, and they did not want Woody Allen to be one of them. Uh, Katzenberg, as we uh, discussed earlier, was heavily involved with this movie before he left Disney. And one of the things that he did to contribute to this film was to convince Woody Allen to go work on Ants with the Z instead of being in Tarzan. And so he made a deal with DreamWorks where DreamWorks would distribute Woody Allen's next four movies in exchange for him being in Ants. So this was really a win-win-win for Disney because they got rid of the Creeper and they ensured that they weren't going to have to deal with him for at least four movies after this. Yeah, it, it was it was a smart move. It was a smart move. Yeah. So um, so they, they brought Wayne Knight in to take over the role, and he did a great job. Um, but Wayne was almost not Tantor. Just like many of these other characters, there were other actors who were in the running. Those included Jeffrey Tambor, Tino Insana, John Ritter, Tim Conway, Bob Hoskins, John Ailes, and Early Sabella, who was actually the voice of Pumbaa. Yeah. which was in production around the same time. So he was he was pretty busy. But yeah. all of those guys were almost Tantor. The, of that list, I have to say, the only one that I could really see playing that role is Jeffrey Tambor. I think I he was, could have done a really interesting job. I was about to say, I thought of a weird parallel, because obviously, obviously Jeffrey Tambor has some 
other problematic issues of his own. But one of the things I thought of just a moment ago was how Tantor is kind of a germaphobe. And I could imagine them at like in the river and somebody comes up and you just hear him go, no touching, no touching. Right. I see. I saw him as Michael senior in the elephant body and it worked for me. So, so that was another potential option that, that might've happened. But I think Wayne Knight was a great choice. Obviously he, he killed it. Yeah. Um, Tantor is one of the best characters in this movie. The baby version of Tantor was played by a four year old voice actor who didn't know how to read. And Aww. so they had to tell him what to say and then record him real quick when he said it or he would have lost it. So uh, so that's what happened there. Tarzan, I may have committed some light treason. <laughs> There's always money in the banana stand. <laughs> I'm having too much fun with this. Um, additional cast. Uh, Lance Henriksen voiced Kerchak, but... I mean, there's a pattern with all of this. There's people who were in the running to be these characters. No kidding. Harrison Ford was considered for the voice of Kerchak, as well as Dustin Hoffman, Bronson Pinoche, I think I pronounced that right, and Christopher Plummer. Uh, As we mentioned before, Brian Blessed was the voice of William Clayton, the aforementioned villain of this film. Tim Curry, Bill Paxton, Robert Forster, Sir Patrick Stewart, and Sir Ian McKellen were all seriously considered for Clayton before Brian Blessed auditioned for it. And I'm glad Tim Curry didn't get it because then we wouldn't have gotten Nigel Thornberry. See, that's funny because I was going to say I could see Tim Curry being a badass Clayton. <laughs> he w- it, Of that alternate list, he would be my pick. Lord Nelson's trousers, it's a yeti. No creature threatens a Thornberry. Nigel Hawthorne was the voice of Professor Archimedes Q. Porter, um, one of my favorite characters in the whole movie. Uh, But Peter Ustinov, Christopher Lloyd, and John Lithgow were all considered for the role of Professor Porter. Let's talk about production stories. So the first production story that we want to talk about is Glenn Keane and his desire to have Tarzan be as quote-unquote animalistic as possible. Um, He really wanted Tarzan to move in a way that live action characters couldn't. And that was kind of going back to Burroughs' assertion that he wanted Tarzan to be animated from the very beginning. There was this sort of notion that Tarzan was so, like, blurred between the line of person and animal that a real person couldn't move in the way that they wanted Tarzan to move. So in order to make sure that Glenn Keane got Tarzan's movements right... um, the Paris animation team had to do a bunch of work. So the team started by studying a bunch of different animals in order to better transpose their movements to Tarzan while also consulting with an anatomy professor. So if you look at the movie, there's that scene that's kind of like a montage where Tarzan's growing from a child into a man, right? And in that part of the movie, you see him mimicking like hippos and giraffes and elephants and all kinds of different animals. And so the animation team did a lot of work to make sure that mimicking those movements was as accurate as it could be. In addition, the Disney animators hired a professor of anatomy to consult with them about Tarzan's musculature. So that professor superimposed the correct types of muscles over the animator's drawings to help show them how to depict a man at the peak of his physical prowess. The idea here was that Having grown up in the jungle, constantly on the move, Tarzan would be pretty ripped. Yeah. Like, that was the main idea here. 
And so he was actually one of the first, I think the first animated Disney character to have an accurate human muscular system. Yeah, I think that's correct. And if you look at him, he d- he does. Yeah. Like I was watching that movie last week and I was like, damn, I got to lay off the pizza. <laughs> you know what I mean? So he's he's got it down. But yeah. um but because of those studies, right? Like this the animation on Tarzan's muscles was super accurate. But that really wasn't the whole puzzle, right? The, the rest of this was understanding how Tarzan was going to move through his environment. And Keen really wanted Tarzan to have this sort of surfing vibe, right? And the reason that he wanted that to happen was because his son was super interested in extreme sports, like skateboarding and surfing and rollerblading and all that fun X game stuff that was so huge back in 1999. The place where this comes into play the most obviously is in the Son of Man sequence. Son of Man unto the sky, lift your spirits and it free. Someday you won't talk with pride. Son of Man, I'm adding time you be. And Son of Man is obviously one of the Phil Collins songs in the movie. It's also what Neo means in the Matrix, so there's a little fun <laughs> tie back for you. Um, and so Keen was really, really gung ho about making this happen. But some of the animators were worried because they heard him talk about surfing, and the last thing that they wanted was for Tarzan to be some kind of Kelly Slater surfer dude yeah. in this movie, right? Like they didn't want him to to walk up to Jan and be like. Oh, what's up, Jan? You got to slap the lip and get pitted, you know? <laughs> so they, they were concerned about that. But uh, Keen did a test animation himself. And when all the other animators saw that, they were on board. Keen is on record as saying that the movements for Tarzan in this scene were inspired by none other than Tony Hawk, who is one of the most iconic and unproblematic people from the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, I hope that that statement ages well. I hope so, too. I really do. Tony, don't fuck up. Uh, And there was actually a commercial for the Tarzan VHS that shows Tony Hawk buying the VHS for his son, skating home to give it to him, and then handing it to him at the end. And the way that they put this commercial together is like Tony's doing all kinds of flips and shit, and then they cut to Tarzan doing like a very similar maneuver in the trees. And then back to Tony, back to Tarzan. And so if that wasn't clear to you while watching the movie, then it became very instantly clear to you when you were watching this commercial. Dad, but can you do it in a loincloth like Tarzan? Tarzan, bring it home this Tuesday. And I got to say that this is, I think, the earliest piece of movie trivia that I ever learned as a person. That's awesome. I remember as a kid, like in 1999, being like, hey, hey, dad, did you know that that Tarzan moves like Tony Hawk? (laughs) And my dad being like, yeah, I guess. You know, like he, yeah. he didn't know, but I remember learning this very early on. Yeah. 
And of course, this is a film that had animals and they wanted to make sure that the animals in this film, most notably the gorillas, were animated as accurately as possible. I remember reading a lot of things about how I mean, this is a thing that dates back all the way to Bambi with how animators wanted to make sure that animals were portrayed as best as they could. So it's not uncommon for teams to go on study trips and observe animals and things like that. So the animation team went to lectures surrounding primates. They went to the zoo. They watched nature documentaries. They learned everything they possibly could about gorillas. And they also got to witness in a kind of a grosser area... Um, a gorilla dissection, but Ooh. they watched it so that they could get a better understanding of the muscular system that makes up the entire animal. So I understand what they're what they're going at. And then they took it a step further. In 1996, the team departs on a two-week safari to Kenya to photograph and study the animals using the photos for reference later on. How much do you think this was just these guys? convincing disney to pay for a trip to kenya i feel like there's always something like that no matter what kind of trip you take i feel um, like this is 90 percent like paid vacation and 10 percent research they visited the Bwindi impenetrable national park in uganda to view gorillas in their natural habitat and get a basic inspiration for all of the landscape and setting animation that they'd be doing but even with that said there they've got the human animation down, they've got the animal animation down, but there was still something missing from this animation. And for this particular film, they wanted to go above and beyond what they'd been able to do before in terms of background animation. Right. So they created something called deep canvas animation, which sounds very nefarious to me. I don't know. When I when I saw this in the research, I thought of Deep State, and I was like, what are they animating? A little bit. I, th I thought of that, too. <laughs> it's kind of weird, but it's not that bad. It's actually a good thing, so don't worry. Uh, deep Canvas, though, was a term created by the artist and engineer Eric Daniels, and it was basically this system of 3D painting and rendering that allowed artists to produce CGI backgrounds that looked like an actual painting. Um, and this is really the system that allows the whole jungle to come to life in a much bigger way than a traditional hand-drawn animation. Um, and it, when I was reading about this, my first thought was, this sounds a lot like what John Lasseter was trying to do with his Where the Wild Things Are adaptation that he got fired for working yeah. on at Disney. Because his whole thing was like, let's use CGI to make these detailed backgrounds. And so I did a little more digging into that, and I actually confirmed. Like, this is the same concept that he had pitched and then gotten fired for. And then they turned around and used it to make Tarzan. Wow. Which was released the same year as Toy Story 2. So there you go. Huh. Um, it all comes back around, right? Um, but this animation technique, I think you can notice it at a bunch of different points throughout the movie. But if you're looking for a good place to start, that baboon chase scene that we talked about earlier is kind of the, the biggest example of this deep canvas animation. And and you can see, even from the first scene where they're hopping into the little dinghy to escape from the sinking ship, that there's CGI animation mixed into the movie. Uh, the backgrounds aren't as big of a deal in that scene, but this kind of stuff pops up everywhere. So it's definitely worth looking at. Yeah, uh, in that opening scene, you can tell there's something different for sure in terms of uh, the animation and the, like, the digital effect that's going into it. It's, and it's very cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so Kevin Lima did an interview with the Orlando Sentinel, and he said that in this movie, we knew Tarzan's actual world had to be a character. 
And so the idea here is that the jungle itself plays a role in the movie. It's not just the setting. It's not just the background. It's not just this thing that the characters are moving through. It's actually contributing to the plot and the story of the movie. Yeah. Um, and this allowed the team to move the background around a piece of artwork. Um, it was live, right? It had this kind of live action camera sort of feel within the animation, like a steady cam. Um, and that wasn't the only special effect in the movie, though. Some other examples are the waterfall scene. Um, and that scene uses more than 250 animation elements per frame. So remember we talked about the dust in Toy Story 2? Yeah. This is kind of a hand-drawn animation equivalent of that dust. Yeah. Um, but even that was not the film's most complex or technically difficult accomplishment. That involved the music and the animation. And Jared, I know that you are thrilled to talk about this next part. So I'm going to pass it off to you. Oh, you have no idea. Enter Phil fucking Collins. <laughs> the lead singer of Genesis himself. And I'm not a massive like Phil Collins or Genesis fan, but there's I think my my love of this soundtrack can be summed up in a tweet that was circulating the internet for years and it says to paraphrase it you know, thinking back, Phil Collins didn't have to go that hard on the Tarzan soundtrack, but he did that. He did that for us. And I think that's very true. <laughs> when I think of Phil Collins and the Tarzan soundtrack, I think of the South Park episode. I think of that too. With Timmy and the Lords of the Underworld, where he's just running around with his Oscar and rubbing it in everybody's face. And that was a slam to, that was South Park making fun of him because they were both nominated for Oscars that year. Yes, they were. For Blame Canada, and then Phil Collins won, obviously. But it's just, it's funny. Um, it's amazing. I, I think of that, too. Phil Collins is the lead singer of a band called Genesis, and he came onto the project in 1995 as a songwriter. He was recommended by a Disney music executive named Chris Montan. What's cool about Tarzan is that even with how the musical, with even with how musical the film is, Tarzan is not a traditional Disney musical. Kevin Lima said in an interview with the Chicago Tribune, I did not want Tarzan to sing. I just couldn't see this half-naked man sitting on a branch breaking out into song. I thought it would be ridiculous. It's a good so, call, I think. I think that was a very good call. So Collins decided, it was decided that Collins would perform all of the songs serving as sort of a musical narrator. I think other than Kala starting to sing You'll Be In My Heart, Phil Collins does all the singing and the music for it. Well, there's the Trash the Camp song. Oh, and that Which, which of I course. think is important to bring up because that's the only song in the movie that really takes that sort of Disney musical tradition and keeps it alive. Yeah. Right? Like, that's really the only scene where a character is singing a full song. Yeah. Collins joined forces with... Um, a composer named Mark Mancina, and he did all of the instrumental scoring for the film. And Mancina had a good rep because he'd just previously produced music for The Lion King and the Broadway musical adaptation of it of the exact same name. Oh, so he had only made some of the best music ever. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> so it. in order to create a score that would complement the film's setting, they used many obscure instruments from Mancina's personal instrument collection to bring these sounds to life. Mancina stated, The idea of score and song arrangement came together as one entity, as Phil and I worked in tandem to create what's heard in the film. And Collins was very quick and skillful with his writing. Yeah, he he handled the songs for this movie 
pretty quickly. Um, in the book The Tarzan Chronicles by Howard Green, most of the songs that Collins wrote for the film were inspired by improv sessions and his reactions while reading the treatment for the film. Uh, Son of Man, Trash in the Camp, that we just talked about, and Strangers Like Me were all based on his initial impressions of the source material. Um, but we all know that Phil Collins was not just the singer of Genesis. He was the drummer of Genesis. The drum solo from In the Air Tonight is probably the most iconic drum solo of all time, except for maybe the drum solo in Fat Bottom Girls by Queen, which is a fucking amazing fill. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Collins is a percussion guy. Right, And so that song, Trash in the Camp, starts off with a lot of percussion. It's a very percussion-heavy song. And something that I found interesting about this is that Phil Collins did all that percussion himself. And not just on drums. He went around the studio and just banged on shit with his hands and drumsticks. He broke actual cups. He hit himself in the face to make drum sounds. He did all kinds of shit to make the sounds in that song. And you can tell, like... The beat in that feels very Phil Collinsy. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, that's not the most famous song in this movie. The most famous song in Tarzan is You'll Be In My Heart. It's the one that everybody remembers. I will be here, don't you cry. Cause you'll be in my heart. Yes, you'll be in my heart. From this day. And Phil Collins wrote that song on the back of a piece of wrapping paper at a Christmas party at his neighbor's house. Yeah, that's awesome. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. What I love about this whole story is that not only does he improvise a lot of this music, not only is he writing it on the fly, not is he coming up with basically like Academy Award Grammy nominated songs like this quickly, he takes it a step further. The film itself was dubbed in 35 languages. And that's, I mean, a lot of movies from big studios, particularly a Disney movie, is going to be dubbed in a different language. But in addition to English, Collins re-recorded the songs themselves in five different languages. So he recorded the songs in English, French, Spanish, Italian, and in German. No shit. That's amazing to me. That's that's not even what is that quintlingual? Is that the the term for it? There's bilingual, trilingual. I don't I think know what after the term a certain is. point you just go with multilingual. Yeah. Okay. Multilingual. But um, how impressive is that, dude? Like, like think about the talent that it takes. Yeah. To not only like like homie is at a Christmas party <laughs> and he's drunk off eggnog and brandy and he's sitting at his neighbor's piano. And his neighbor's like, hey, Phil, you know, it's Christmas. Can you play, like, Jingle Bells or something? And Phil Collins just looks at him and he goes, now stop your crying, it'll <laughs> be all right. And everyone in the party just perks up and goes, what's that? <laughs> now take my hand and hold it tight. Do you have any wrapping paper? <laughs> <laughs> I can see the scene. That's I, I can see that playing out in my head. So it's not just that, though. Like, he does that, which is just immensely talented already. And then he does it in five more languages. Yeah, it's nuts. Um, 
I mean, it, it, he he earned he earned the Academy Award he got for it for sure. So let's talk about let's touch on the symbolism and any metaphors. And I feel like this will be shorter than our usual segments because we covered some pretty symbolically heavy films in the last few episodes. But there's a couple of themes that are touched on throughout the film, like togetherness, the idea of identity, finding a sense of belonging, but we kind of touched on that earlier. And other than that, there's no real symbolism. It's a Disney movie, so it's pretty it's pretty to the point. Yeah. It I mean, we we talked about this too. It touches on some dark themes, and I don't think we need to go over those again. No. It's it's definitely a bit darker than usual Disney films, while still having that emotional uh, lightheartedness to it in, in other moments. And it keeps the other tradition alive of sort of referencing other Disney properties that it does. In, a, in kind of a fun way throughout the movie. So one of those examples is when the gorillas pick up Professor Porter and turn him upside down, um, a beanbag toy of little brother from Mulan falls out of his pocket. I did so, not notice that. It's kind of cool. It's nice. a little Easter egg, right? It's like the, the Luxo ball for, for Disney animation. Nice. The other really obvious one in this movie that I think most people noticed is that during that Trash in the Camp song, one of the first things you see is a teapot and a set of teacups in the camp. And it's very clearly the same tea set that Mrs. Potts and Chip came from in yes. Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> um, and it's kind of funny because they don't just like show it and move on. They show it and then Tantor sees it and he's afraid that they're going to come to life. <laughs> and Turk's like, pull yourself together. You're embarrassing me. These things aren't alive. But we know. That's that funny. Not only are they alive, they're actual people trapped in the teacups. Yeah. Very sad. Yes. Um, the movie also references Disney parks, which is kind of fun. Um, there's a boat that appears in this movie that's very similar to the Jungle Cruise boats. Um, and in the scene where one of the gorillas takes Clayton's gun away and looks at it, he looks right down the barrel of the gun, which you shouldn't do unless you're in a Taking Back Sunday song. Um, but that gorilla <laughs> is in the exact same pose as one of the apes on Jungle Cruise at Disneyland. I like so, how you tied in Taking Back Sunday and uh, our roots in in emo and pop punk music. I've been too, trying to sneak emo into this. It's great. As, I love as it. often as I can. I love it. You didn't um, like my Broken Side reference that I made before. Well, many people didn't like Broken Side and what they did, so... <laughs> For good reason. Uh, let's talk about the release and the reception. In traditional Disney fashion, there's mar it's marketing, marketing, marketing. So Disney partnered with Mattel to release everything you could think of. Much like how we talked about this with Toy Story, it brought Toy Store or toy companies back into business. Uh, it didn't go that drastic this time, but they were making books, toys, stuffed animals, much more. As if there wasn't enough Tarzan shit out there from yeah. the early 1900s. Now we've gotten more books. Yeah, so there's more stuff that's continuing the story, and now it's got the Disney label on it, and it's just, it's everywhere. And I remember very vividly as a kid, this movie was everywhere. But apparently, there was a Tarzan action figure that was called Rad Repeatin' Tarzan. But it got discontinued. Why, Jared? Why? Why? Well, when Tarzan, when the toy was released, it was this whole thing where Tarzan, does, when you push a button on the toy, usually like with Woody, you pull the string and then it 
says a phrase. There's a snake in my boot. Exactly. Buzz Lightyear, you push the back, the wings pop out. It, you push the buttons, it makes noises, it, it, you can pretend it flies around, all that stuff. I'm on a mission in uncharted space. Exactly. So with Tarzan, it was supposed to be that he lifts his arms up and does his yell. Like he's, he can't beat his chest, the technology's not there yet, and if they did, it would just look not what they wanted. So the idea was that the toy would lift up and wave its arms while it was making the yell. But that's not what happened. When Tarzan moves his hands up and down with this toy, while letting out his trademark yell, he looked like he was doing something that wasn't Disney approved. (laughs) And you can check out the video. Just type in Rad Repeating Tarzan, but it looks like he's jerking off. It's amazing. It's so so amazing. Like, when I saw this video for the first time, Jared sent me this YouTube link a couple days ago, and I clicked on the link, and I watched it, and I howled with laughter because not not only does it look like tarzan is just fucking choking the chicken (laughs) as hard as he can it's also impossible to guess what he was supposed to actually be doing like like it's not just a situation where like if you move his hand to the wrong spot it looks like he's jerking off like when you play with this toy there's no other there's no conceptual vision in my mind for what else he could be doing but jerking it and i don't understand how this got through like a focus group and and it's sent out to toys r us yeah i don't understand how no one in marketing said anything about it and was like we have a problem here um and 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 how everybody looked at it as it was okay and it's it's hilarious it's it's, one of the funniest things i've ever seen they pulled it which was the right thing to do yeah but there were still plenty of other Tarzan toys out there. Absolutely. Uh, there were plenty of toys in McDonald's Happy Meals. But luckily, he was only fingering buttholes in those toys. So it wasn't as big of a deal. Jesus Christ. No, that, that's not true. But they did have toys at McDonald's and soda straws that replicated the Tarzan yell. Which is exactly what you want when you're taking that first cool, refreshing sip of McDonald's Sprite. Is you just want like, <laughs> oh! Yeah, exactly. Johnny, Chris Bennett has just one putt left to win this championship. Tarzan sound straws, only at McDonald's. Three different noise-making soda slurpers from Disney's new movie. Now $1.49 each when you buy any large sandwich. And your parents really wanted it. I remember as a kid having one of those straws, and I had it for about a day. Yeah. And my parents were like, get that fucking thing in the garbage. (laughs) Yeah, so they, they partnered and they did a lot of different mcdonald's things they also they went on to partner with them again for uh in 2000 when the film was put out on home video and i remember these toys because i remember collecting them when i was a kid they were eight different happy meal toys they were all didn't really do anything they were just different characters from the movie um but they also apparently tied offered food options that tied into the movie as well including banana sundaes which if it was mcdonald's the ice cream machine was probably always broken and uh, <laughs> something called Jungle Burgers. What was on the Jungle Burger? I don't know. What would you say if Tarzan was at McDonald's? What would you say if one of eight jungle action toys from Disney's new movie came in every Happy Meal you buy? Exactly. Did somebody say McDonald's? Speaking of food as well, they also partnered with Nestle. 
and they created Tarzan candies that included uh, a banana flavored chocolate bar. That sounds kind of tasty. It actually, does. I'm not gonna lie to you. Yeah, but I also like banana laffy taffy, which I realize puts me in the same column as like Jeffrey Dahmer. So, <laughs> you know, don't don't take my opinion for fact here. But um, as far as the film's hype, things were looking really good. Yeah, I mean, according to box office tracking, uh, Tarzan was appealing to all four major demographics, which was a first for any Disney animated film since The Lion King in 1994. Now, I'm going to say this as a personal opinion. There are a lot more than four demographics in the world. (laughs) So I, I think that's important to think about. But when this movie was being made, they were worried about four key demographics, and that was Quadrant One, males under 25 quadrant two females under 25 quadrant three males over 25 and quadrant four females over 25 obviously lots of oversimplification going on there yeah one of those things being that if i'm a seven-year-old boy i have the same mentality as a 24 year old man when i'm going to the movies which personally is true, but I don't think for everybody necessarily. <laughs> you may have just pointed out a big flaw in the Hollywood system, though. That's a little bit of a flaw. Yeah. Um, right? They're like, we just want everyone who's 24 and below to like the Lego movie, and, and that's all we care about. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they still follow these four quadrants, but most films back then generally aim to appeal to at least two of these quadrants, and if they did, that was considered a pretty successful movie. Yeah. According to an article in The New Yorker from 2014... Films are rarely produced by a major studio if they don't fit into at least two of those quadrants. And Tarzan was hitting all four. Yeah. So Disney was in good shape. It's showtime at this point. The film premiered at El Capitan Theater, um, which is a prominent site for most Disney premieres, on June 12, 1999. The cast and the filmmakers all attended, and the film was followed by a 40-minute concert by Phil Collins performing all of the songs from the movies, which just, yes. (laughs) That's kind of fun, but it's also like, hey, man, we just heard all these. Do you have to? It's like, shut up and listen to my material. You can't keep talking about the movie until you've heard my songs again. Man, it's like, all right, fine, cool. Um, But the film itself was officially released on June 16th, 1999 in a limited release followed by a wider release on June 18th. It's important to note that the film had a budget of $130 million. And in its opening weekend, it grosses $34.1 million. And while that doesn't look amazing, it made more than A Bug's Life and Mulan did in their respective box office opening weekends. Okay. It had ranked second just behind The Lion King in terms of opening box office numbers. And by August 1999, the domestic gross of the film had reached $170 million. So, including the worldwide box office gross... The film had made 448.2 million worldwide. So it was a massive box office success. And it was the first Disney animated movie to open at the US, at number one at the US box office since Pocahontas. So that's good. They have a good pattern of problematic movies doing well in yep. the theaters. Exactly. Great. Great. <laughs> um, it did well with audiences too because. Tarzan has an 89% fresh score on Rotten Tomatoes out of 105 reviews um, and a 75% audience consensus score as well. The movie was well-received, for sure. And as we always do, we're going to talk about a couple of different uh, critical reviews from 
people whose job it is to watch <laughs> movies and critique them. Absolutely. Uh, so one of these is going to come from Peter Stack from the San Francisco Chronicle. And that one says, quote, The famous Tarzan yodel is a peal of movie-making triumph for Disney's beautifully crafted, frantically fun new animated feature Tarzan. So far, the most entertaining film of the year. Pretty good so far. Adults may missed up over Tarzan's struggle to measure up in his adopted world under the disapproving gaze of the alpha male Kerchak. But children will be agog at the zany adventures, including a wild baboon chase. Tarzan himself is fun to watch, an amazing athlete who leaps, swings, climbs, and skates on mossy tree branches, giving some of the film's action sequences a video game rush. A new three-dimensional technique, Deep Canvas, lends a lustrous depth to Tarzan's dense tree-canopied realm. So overall, it's fair to say that Peter Stack was pretty enamored with the movie, it sounds like. Yeah. But there was another Peter who actually had some criticism. And I specifically went to, it was a coincidence that it was another person named Peter. But I wanted to specifically find, in in terms of doing this, we always try to find a positive and a negative review, if at all possible. And if there was a review that touched on the racism in the original story of Tarzan that we talked about quite a bit at the beginning. And... Lo and behold, I found a review from someone named Peter Rayner um, from New York Magazine. And it goes as, quote, and this is actually the entire review. It's just a short capsule review. The entire review is as follows. In the new Disney animated feature Tarzan, which has some first-rate animation and some second-rate storytelling, the ape man glimpses his first human and wails to his ape mom, why didn't you tell me there were creatures who looked like me? Actually, aside from his Rasta locks, the creature Tarzan most looks like is Fabio. He's been given that hyperphysiqued appearance that animators now so often equate with, with superheroism. Even Moses in The Prince of Egypt had it. He's also been given a lustier yell. None of that Johnny Weissmuller jungle yodel for this guy. When he finally hooks up with Jane, he gets so worked up that he surfs the treetops. It's a high-flying form of autoeroticism, and it points up just how sublimate, sublimated Tarzan is. Jesus. I feel like this is a little bit of a stretch, but anyway. Dude, well, first of all, he was surfing the treetops before Jane showed up. Yeah. But anyway, go on. Yeah. He might not have been so deprived if the animators had set f seen fit to introduce a few Africans into the jungle, but there's Naria one. Perhaps Disney thought the best way to get around the... And I'm not kidding, this is what it says. Perhaps Disney thought the best way to get around the Ooga Booga stereotype was to eliminate blacks altogether. Jesus. It's the neutron bomb version of political correctness. Dude, so this guy is simultaneously ripping Disney for leaving out the black characters, but then also doing it in like a very racist way. That's what I thought when I read this. That's, that's absolutely what I thought. And I thought that, that was very strange and why I pulled it so we could discuss it. That's <laughs> weird, man. Th this is yeah. a weird review. I'm, I'm blown away by that. I don't know yeah. what to say. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, I didn't know what to say either, but I think it's, I wanted to find this because it was one that pointed out the rate, like the inherent racism of the story but then it kind of just responds by being a little more racist in response to it. And I, I feel like it didn't, I feel like the writer was trying to make a point, but it fell because he just kind of fell into making the same tropes that 
he was criticizing the film for in a weird way. That's but, interesting. Like anyway, like I'll, like hearing this review, like he he's right, but yeah. also like that's not the way to say it. I agree, a hundred percent. You know what I mean? Like he picks up on something that we talked about earlier in the podcast, um, which is that erasure, right? But I mean, he he's almost talking about it like there's a checkbox you should have checked and you didn't check it. He's not talking about it in the right way. One of my favorite reviews for this movie, Jared, yes. did not come from an official reviewer. It was just like a fan who wrote to the New York Times on really? July 22nd after the movie came out. And he said that he was very angry that Tarzan's exaggerated physique would cause unrealistic expectations in young boys. And there were no other films in history that caused him to think that that would cause unreal ex- expectations in young boys. Well, it's just interesting to me. It's like, what, what are those unrealistic expectations that you're talking about? Is it like, the musculature? Sure. Okay. Like, when I was a little kid and I watched this, I just knew already. I'm never going to look like that guy. Yeah. I eat way too many ho-hos to look like that guy. <laughs> so that wasn't it. I don't know. I feel like that's like a weird, creepy thing to like think and then also write to a newspaper. But it's also the same thing as saying like, oh, well, Victoria's Secret models set unrealistic expectations for how uh, women should look or what um, if like uh, a little girl sees that and then thinks that, oh, I have to look like that in order to be desired. But like that's a different situation because that's like a real photo of a person, not like an animated jungle man who you yeah. know is fake. That, okay, that's a very good point. I I thought we were just talking about <laughs> movies and pop culture in general, but you're 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 right. It's that is weird if you're talking I, about an animated character. I think the animated character. I think this says more about this guy than it does about anything else. But I don't know. I I saw this on IMDb and I just thought it was interesting. The film did receive a number of awards as well, um, and of course for the music. So the film received an Academy okay. Award and a Golden Globe for "You'll Be in My Heart" as best original song. And the song was also nominated for uh, two Grammy Awards. One was for best best film song, which it did not win. But Phil Collins and Mark Mancina did win the other Grammy for best soundtrack album. And additionally, the film received eleven Annie Award nominations, winning one for Eric Daniels in the technical achievement in the field of animation. What's um, an which was, Annie Award? Annie Award is the te- the technical Oscars. Okay. Let's wrap this up and talk about The Legacy Beyond 1999. Let's do it, man. Cool. So the film was released on home video and DVD on February 1st, 2000. It has since been reissued in a two-disc collector's edition, um, a special edition DVD in 2005, and a Blu-ray release in 2014. And of course, it... Well, actually... Yeah, so so I... As of recording this, it will be. I fucked up on something. I wrote in our notes, and of course, it's now on Disney Plus. I went to go watch the movie this weekend, yeah, and while Tarzan is listed on, while Tarzan is listed on Disney Plus, it says, due to licensing issues, this film will be available on June 26, twenty twenty. So it was on Netflix. So but by the I, time you hear this, it'll be on Disney Plus. Yeah, by this Friday, it will be on Disney Plus. The film also spawned a Disney television show for ABC, The Legend of Tarzan which ran for two years, picking up right where the film left off. Uh, In addition to that, there were a couple of sequels, both straight to video, Tarzan and Jane in 2002, and Tarzan 2 in 2005, which I believe is a mid-quill. 
Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. What else? What else is is the legacy of this movie, Jared? So there, uh, deep canvas was a technique that was used in a number of other Disney films, most notably. Um, two other very criminally underrated Disney films, Atlantis, The Lost Empire, and Treasure Planet, both heavily utilized this technology. Treasure Planet doing it more so, but Atlantis really starting to take advantage of the technology that was there. I don't know why those movies failed to hit, but they're both really good. God, they're awesome. I'm probably going to rewatch soon. It's been ages, but I loved them. And there was a Broadway musical of Disney's Tarzan uh, that when Disney was doing really well with The Lion King, they're like, oh, we could probably make this work. So they did it, and it ran for uh, just one year on Broadway from 2006 to 2007. And of course, (laughs) it's in Kingdom Hearts. Tarzan and the deep jungle setting in Africa are one of the worlds in the epic video game Kingdom Hearts and in Kingdom Hearts HD 1.5 Remix. The other place that you might see Tarzan is at Disneyland in Tarzan's Treehouse, which is something that my friends and I like to call Stairs the Ride because it's literally just <laughs> climbing all fucking day. That's really what it is, yes. It, it's, it sucks, to be honest with you. It's a walkthrough <laughs> attraction in Adventureland. And when I say walkthrough, I mean climb through because it's literally just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stairs. It took over what used to be the Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse uh, in 1999 and... They switched it over right before the movie premiered, as Disney is known to do. Um, And now, the treehouse has made a home in Hong Kong Disneyland's Adventure, beginning in 2005. Uh, There was also a live-action show for a while at Animal Kingdom in Florida called Tarzan Rocks! But that show has (laughs) since been replaced. And I'm wondering if it was replaced by the Lion King show at Animal Kingdom, which is one of the best shows at a Disney park ever. Yeah, I don't think it was replaced by The Lion King. I think that show was... I think it was actually replaced by The Finding Nemo show. Oh, Finding Nemo show. Because they... I do not believe they've gotten rid of that uh, Lion King show. Well, no, that's what I'm saying, is that they replaced Tarzan with that, maybe. But I don't know. Interesting, yeah. I know nothing. I'm Jon Snow. I mean, that's as far as it goes with Disney, um, in terms of Tarzan's legacy. But in terms of Tarzan, the character, despite everything we pointed out earlier... They're still making Tarzan movies as like most recently as 2016. So David Yates, who was the director of several Harry Potter films, I think he directed everything from Goblet of Fire onward, produced a big screen live action adaptation called The Legend of Tarzan, which starred Alexander Skarsgård as Tarzan. Margot Robbie is Jane Clayton, and actors including Samuel L. Jackson, Christoph Waltz, and Jimon Hunsu. And I'm thinking, like, I'm looking at this, like, this movie has a 36% Rotten Tomatoes score. I remember the ads for this, and I was like, uh, another Tarzan movie. Kind of like another, like, like Clash of the Titans kind of movie. I'm thinking, like, I don't really need to see this if this see, comes out. See, you remember out. the ads for this, but I think most people just remember the abs for this. Because everything that I've seen about online is just Alexander Skarsgård looking ripped. Yeah. And that's like, you know, it's become like a Tumblr thing. Yeah. It has this, it has a 36% Rotten Tomato score. And I'm thinking like, no one's going to go see this. This isn't going to do huge. It was made for $180 million. And I'm thinking, okay, well, Warner Brothers probably realized it. It made $356.7 million worldwide. So people are still going to see this character. Dude, people like abs. 
Well, so dude, this... you got to think about this. You got to think about it. It was 2016. Wouldn't you watch anything to get away from what was going on in 2016? Yeah, that's fair. Okay, that's that's totally fair. That that kind of answered a question that I had, but this was a burning question that I had written uh, to tr- to kind of tr- transition into this next section, but. With all of its problematic origins, with Tarzan literally translating to white skin, why are people still making Tarzan films and stories? What is it about this character? Is it just people's ignorance to racism? Is it people wanting, seeing what's there and wanting to change it, kind of like what Disney did with Splash Mountain? How they saw that it was there, but they're like, we're just going to ignore this and we're going to change it and turn it into something fun. What is it about Tarzan and why are people still making it? Why do you think? Dude, I, I honestly, I I think it's a lack of originality. Okay. I, I Honestly, I think it's as easy as the rights to it aren't expensive, and it's an easy story to tell, and it's a recognizable name, and it's worked in the past. Like, honestly, I think those things are, are really what's driving it. Yeah. And I think there is a level of interest, and I think there's probably an opportunity to do something really interesting with this property. If, if somebody were brave enough to make it and actually like explore what it's about, (laughs) you know what I mean? But yeah, I I think it's, I think it's just convenience. I think it's name recognition. I think it's easy to make. I think it's easy to cast. I think it's easy to do. I will buy that for a dollar. That's what I usually say. I know. Jared, (laughs) <laughs> so and well usually you have the burning questions so uh this is a a fun fun little switch up i didn't um, have a lot of questions about this one because as someone who studied like english literature in college and grad school yeah like we talked about this you know what i mean so i i spent more time than i needed to dissecting this in every which way like they watched a gorilla dissection college for me was watching a tarzan dissection so yeah i don't have any questions Let's wrap this up with our reactions. So, Andrew, you go first. What did you dislike and like about this movie? Dude, okay. I mean, I don't know. My my dislikes are usually petty. <laughs> um, and my dislike about this movie is, is pretty petty as well. Um, I think this is a really great Disney movie. I, obviously, there's problematic stuff that got overlooked. Um, but looking at it for what's there, I, I like this movie a lot. But I do think it's interesting that Tarzan speaks with an American accent, even though the only English he's ever learned has been from English people. Holy shit, you're right. <laughs> so that's so that's a little thing that bothers me a little bit. Is like she's like, oh, it's Clayton, and he's like, Clayton. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, where'd you pick that up, bro? But I mean, that's that's not a, a big thing to to be bothered by, really. Clayton. <laughs> Have we met? <laughs> How does he know my name? (laughs) He thinks it means the sound of a gunshot. Jane. Yes, hello, Tarzan. (laughs) I see what you mean about those personal boundaries. (laughs) Um, In terms of things that I liked, I I actually appreciated kind of the level of grit in this movie for being a a cartoon and a Disney movie. I think it definitely followed up on that hunchback train of being a little more real. Um, And even though they sort of covered up and erased a lot of the more difficult to talk about things. There was a lot of like blood and death and all kinds of like scarier themes. And 
I think that makes this movie a lot more rewatchable as an adult. It's interesting. For a Disney movie, the body count in this is actually six characters who pass away. Hmm. Um, Colin Kirchak's first son, Tarzan's parents, Sabor, Clayton, and Kirchak all die in this movie. So that's a lot of characters for a kid's movie. And and I, I feel weird saying that that's something I liked about it, but I appreciate... I appreciate like the realism of that. And, and I think it made me connect emotionally with it a lot more than I would have otherwise. What about you? I kind of stated this at the beginning, but I feel like for everything that it is, that my dislike is that there's so many more things that they should have done with the film. And in terms of, I, I appreciate how dark it got. I You make a really good point in terms of it has a, it's not afraid to go in that direction and kind of, like you said, go off of things that were darker like The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which brought in the idea of mortality and characters being killed and doing that in a Disney movie. But I think that it should have gone a step further in terms of addressing the racism and I think that it should have made that a theme of the film. I think it would have been a major step forward for Disney as it would not only show them making a film that's geared toward a younger audience, talking about a serious topic, but I think it would have helped them get closer to reconciling with the more racist aspects of their past that the studio had had. Putting a disclaimer on Dumbo or Fantasia is not enough, and I feel like Tarzan was such a missed opportunity. Well, I'm, I mean, I'll tell you this right now. Someday Disney's going to make a live action do over of Tarzan. Probably not soon because we just had the Skarsgård one a couple years ago. So they're going to wait a little while. But a few years in the future, they're going to make a live action remake of this. Yeah. And they're going to have to, they won't have a choice. They're going to have to deal with it when they make that one. Yeah. If they don't, that's, I mean, they're putting the nail in their own coffin. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they, they, they just have to. So when this movie gets made, I'm going to say in like 2023 as a live action remake, it, it, it has to happen. But the good things, Phil Collins soundtrack, every song in this that is made is perfectly executed. I appreciated that it wasn't a traditional Disney musical and it was a nice break from that as much as I do love them. Uh, the deep canvas animation scenes really do make the scenes that much more beautiful. I keep thinking back to... Uh, like the Strangers Like Me sequence and the scenes where like when Tarzan takes Jane up into the trees to see the parrots that she's trying to take a to uh, draw and just how she's looking around and everything. It was really a testament of the time in regards to how much you could do with animation. And I loved seeing old being blended with the new. I thought that was really awesome. And okay. finally... I love Tantor, particularly baby Tantor at the scene with the watering hole. Mom, are you sure this water sanitary? It looks questionable to me. It's fine, honey. Yeah. But what about bacteria? Dude, Tantor would have done great in the coronavirus. He would have been great. He would have been he had his mask on for sure. <laughs> okay, we did it. What did you guys think of Tarzan? Do you agree with us? Do you not agree with us? Let's start a dialogue and let's talk about it. Um, you can email us at 1999pod at gmail.com or reach out at the social media links we've included below. Next week, I am so excited. This is one of my favorite films and I'm so ready to get into this. We're talking about 1999, Brendan Fraser, The Mummy.
Hell yeah, dude. I don't think I've ever seen this movie. I'm going to be honest with so you. Fun. I'm excited as fuck. Yes. To me, it's like if Indiana Jones was both scarier and sillier at the same time. And I, I love it. So um, it is currently not streaming anywhere on like Netflix or a platform like that. But you can rent it on Amazon, YouTube, Google Play, iTunes, or wherever else you can digitally rent your films. Until next week, be kind, rewind. We will see you for The Mummy. See you next time. Coming soon to theaters. Many men have wasted their lives in the foolish pursuit of Harmonoptra. Most have never returned. I think you found something. the creature that we have feared for more than 3,000 years is the bringer of death. He will never stop. This summer, Universal Pictures invites you on an extraordinary adventure beyond life and time. Come on, come on!